uh, please stand on your feet to honor the word of God. So our sermon this week is taken from Mark 2, verse 13 until 22. So let's read it together. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribe of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need with physician, but those who are sick, I come known to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a of strong clothes on a garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old white skin. If he does, the wine will burst the skin and the wine destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skin. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, before you guys sit, why don't you give a nod to your neighbors and just say, you must be a disciple of Christ to come to church today. And why don't you give a nod to the other neighbors and say, you must be a Pharisee. Okay. That's the only two choices that you have to be in church today. Either you're a true disciple or you're a true Pharisee. You may be seated. Now, I really enjoy the, the book of Mark, okay? I think this is probably one of my favorite. By the way, Nate, can you start the time? All right. For those of you who have been to my house, um, you will know that the moment that you step into my house, you will be greeted with this family portrait, which was taken when I was nine years old. Almost everyone loved, or at least tried not to love, when they saw the portrait for the first time. If you never saw it, don't worry. Some people took the liberty of taking a picture of it for the very purpose of circulating the picture in the next few coming days. So what, what you might know, though, the suffering that I have to go through because of that picture. Now, See, every time we have to play sport at school, See, I was always part of this group that I call the invisible players. Do you guys know what I mean by invisible players? I mean, I was one of those players, whether I play or not, it does not make any difference whatsoever. So I always got picked last, and I hate it. Anyone, anyone know my experience, or am I the only one, right? Okay, if you see my picture, you will not be surprised. But you and I understand this one principle, right? If we want the job done right, we have to find the right person to do it. So we understand this. So for example, so if we have a problem with our car, you will not call your pastor. I mean, your pastors know a lot about the Bible, 
but he does not know anything about cast engine. You need someone who knows something about cast engine. If you need a chef, you don't find someone who knows how to wield a paintbrush. You find someone who knows how to wield a knife. It's logical, right, to find the right person for the right job, for the job. You with me on that? That's what we understand. But however, when it comes to the kingdom of God, today we'll, we'll see that Jesus never seek the right person. Jesus, Jesus never seek the right people. Why? Because when Jesus picked his team, we will see he never looked for the right person. Why? He never looked for the theologically trained, morally upright, spiritual disciplined people. Instead, he gathered everyday sinners. Because Jesus intentionally chose those who are weak to shame the strong. Because the truth is this. No one is good in the eyes of Jesus. Because if Jesus were to choose the good and capable people for his team, there would be none in his team. Because Jesus is on a whole different level compared to all of us. He's not impressed by anyone. And yet, what's beautiful about the gospel is Jesus says this to us. Listen, I don't need you to win. I can play the game on my own. I can win by myself. But yet, I chose people for my team because I want them. This is what's radical about the gospel. Get this. The gospel tells us that God chose his people not based on merit, but grace. He chose those who are his, not based on their goodness, but his love. And none of us can deserve God's grace because grace is solely given at God's pleasure. This is why grace is scandalous. So today, as we continue in the book of Mark, remember what happened in the last couple of weeks, apparently Jesus has become very popular. Jesus has become very popular to the point that everyone wants to meet Jesus. Everyone wants peace of Jesus. Okay? And in Mark chapter 2, we see this. The popularity of Jesus is spreading like wildfire. But not only that, opposition to Jesus also rises just as rapidly. Because Jesus again and again continued to challenge people's expectation. Because people have this agenda, what Messiah look like, look like, what Jesus should do. But then Jesus showed up in the scene and he's very different from what people expected. And in this passage today, Jesus will show us why. Why do some people really cannot stand Jesus? Because Jesus tells us, when he comes to the earth, he does not come to meet people's expectation. No. He comes to destroy people's expectation because he's offering something new and better, something radically different, and that is called the gospel. See, the gospel is not an addition to our life. The gospel is like explosion that destroys our old life to create something new. The gospel changes everything. That is why you either love the gospel or you hate it. And as we will see, there's people who love Jesus and there's people who hate Jesus because the way he treats sinful people. So let's get into the passage. After the point for my sermon, the call of grace, the fellowship of grace, and the newness of grace. I got the first one, the call of grace. Verse 13 to verse 14. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, it's, it's obvious by now that every time Jesus gathered with a lot of people, Jesus' priority is what? Teaching the gospel. He always does that. 
So whenever the crowd gathers, he always loved to teach. But then after he teach, what happens is Jesus walked past by, and then he sees Levi at the tax booth. That means this. That means Levi is a tax collector. So when Jesus sees Levi, a tax collector, Jesus says to him, follow me. And the moment Levi hears, follow me, what Levi does, Levi immediately rises from his seat and follow Jesus. And for you and me, it's like, oh, that's cool, that's sweet. But in that culture, this is scandalous. Because by calling a tax collector to follow Jesus, Jesus commit unpardonable act. Because Jesus ignored the social norm of his days. Okay, let me explain. Because for many of us, we don't really have understanding of what is a tax collector, okay? We don't have equivalent of tax collector in our days. So what, what that tax collector does is this. Tax collector is public, I mean, number one's public enemy in those days. Why? Here's why. Because they collect money from people with interest to fund the Roman's army. So whenever Romans conquer a city, Romans need, need taxes, right, for them to survive. And what they do, they will get a native person from that city, and that person will be responsible to collect taxes. And Roman's government, they don't care how much money these tax collector get, as long as they meet the quota. So how does the tax collector make the money? By adding a lot of interest for their own gain. And that is why for the Jews, tax collectors are number one public enemy. Because why? Because they sell out their family, friends, and their nation. So the Jews who have this very strong nationalistic pride, they hated tax collector. In fact, they say this, tax collectors are worse than sinners. Okay, I don't know how that works. So they're worse than sinners. They say this, there's one document that say it is okay to lie to tax collectors. Why? Because lying to an animal is not a sin. Can you imagine that? That's how bad tax collectors are regarded. And they're not allowed to come to the synagogue. They are disgraced to the family. And here's what's funny. The moment tax collector enter a house, the entire house become unclean. Okay, this is worse than a leper. Okay, a couple of weeks ago, remember we talked about leper and how leper, people find a leper very offensive? A tax collector is even worse than a leper. Because leper, they became unclean not by choice. But tax collector, they are unclean by choice. See, that's why tax collectors are despised and hated by the Jews. But then here comes Jesus. So Jesus come, and then he sees Levi, the worst of the worst of the worst, and he said to Levi, Levi, I want you to follow me. I mean, come on, Jesus. Out of all people in Capernaum, out of anyone that you can call to follow you, Jesus choose the most unacceptable person, the very least likely candidate. Because G Levi, come on, face it, Levi is the man that no one wanted. Levi is the man that everyone condemned. And that's why this is scandalous. I am sure if we were Jesus, we will not choose Levi to be our disciple. Can we agree on that? Because he is the most unlikely candidate. But Jesus is different. Because Jesus does not operate based on merit, but on grace. And listen, grace is only given to the unqualified. Grace is given at God's choice. And I think a lot of times, the reason why we are surprised, the reason why we are shocked that Jesus will call people like Levi, here's why. Because deep inside our heart, we think we are better than Levi. We think we're different. 
But the truth is, there is not a single righteous person. Not even one. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And the fact is, Jesus only has sinners to work with. If Jesus does not work with sinners, Jesus has no one to work with. The reality about Levi is this. Levi's story is your story and my story. What happened is, you and I are sitting in our own sin boot. And until Jesus interrupts us and calls us to follow Him, we will remain sitting in that tax booth for the rest of our life. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus saw us, Jesus called to us, and He said, follow me. And the moment we hear the call of grace, here's what happened. Faith arose in us. And the moment faith arose in us, suddenly we believe and we walk up, we step up from our sin boot, and we follow Jesus. So if you and I today, we call ourselves follower of Jesus, listen, you and I have absolutely no reason to boast in our salvation. Because the reason we're saved is simply because God has chosen us and called us to be His. That's it. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said this, I am quite certain that if God has not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And I am sure He chose me before I was born or else he, he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me. For I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. And when I say this, I hope you don't get offended. When I say that God chose you because nothing to do with you, I hope you're not offended. Because this is such a good news. Do you know why? Think about it. If the reason God chose you has nothing to do with you, it means that God's love for you and me is constant in everyday life. Whether you're in mountaintop or whether in your the lowest of valley, God loves you the same because from the very beginning, He never loved you because of you. He chose you and He loved you because of His goodness alone. I mean, that should be our bedrock foundation why we can face 22, 2022 with confidence. Because we know it's not about us. God loves us because of His own goodness. But it doesn't, stand, doesn't stop there. Here's what I love. We're not simply called by grace, but God wants to use us to be extensions of grace. Because Levi has another name. Anyone know what's Levi's another name? Levi's other name is Matthew. Okay, and this is the same Matthew that write the book of Matthew. And do you know what Matthew means? The name Matthew means the gift of God. And this is what grace does. Grace changed Levi's into Matthew. Grace changed thief into gift. So when Jesus sees Levi and is sitting in the textbook, what Jesus sees is not merely thief, but what Jesus is, this person I will use him, I will shape him, and one day he will write the gospel of Matthew. This is what grace does. Many years ago, a great marble block was brought into the city of Florence. So this marble was intended um, to be made into a statue of a great Old Testament prophet. But then the marble contained many imperfections. So when the great sculptor Donatello, this is not Kura Kura Ninja, right? The grave sculptor Donatello saw it. He immediately refused the job. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. So the marble was left in Cardinal Yard 
become a useless block. Then one day, another sculptor saw the imperfect block, but this time it was different. This sculptor imagined the wonder that he could do with this block, and he decided, all right, let me do the job. So for two years, he worked extremely hard to create this piece of art. And finally, on 25th of January, 1504, all the people of the city assembled together to see what this artist made of this imperfect floor block. And as the fail removed from the statue, everybody held their breath. It was a masterpiece, and it continued to be one for years to come. You know what that statue is? The statue was a statue of David by Michelangelo. Again, not Turtle Ninja. One of the greatest works of art in history. In the same way, we must understand this. Listen, when Jesus called us in all our imperfection, he does not see us a flow product. He sees us as his masterpiece. And Jesus is the great artist who turned the worst sinner into his masterpiece. This is why grace is scandalous. But I want you to pay attention to the way that Levi responded to the call of grace. Because when Levi hear the call of Jesus, Levi immediately rise from his seat and follow Jesus. It means this, that when you decided to follow Jesus, it's not simply an act of believing, it's an act of doing. The moment Levi leave the tax booth, listen, there's no turning back from him. Fishermen can always go back to their booth and go back fishing. But a tax collector who will abandon his post cannot return to his post. And this is radical decision. And let me tell you why this is important, because here's my concern. It is very possible for you to be in church all your life. It is very possible for you to have an intellectual agreement with everything that I say right now and not experience the call of grace. That's frightening because the call of grace changes people. The call of grace gives new life. So the question would be, well, how do I know then if I have experienced the call of grace? Here's how. We know that we experience the call of grace when there's this sense growing in us that Jesus must be the person that I love the most, that my, my commitment, that my relationship with him have to be the one that defines every other commitment, every other relationship in this world. If you have that sense growing in you, then you know you have experienced the call of grace. So the question for all of us, especially those of you who make it to church despite covert is this. The question is not this, whether are you in church or not. That's shallow. The question is this, are you following Jesus or not? Because the call of grace produces real change. But let us look at the second one, and this is where it gets very controversial. The fellowship of grace. Mark 2, verse 15 to 17. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisee, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not, called to, the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is very interesting. So the moment after Levi decided to follow Jesus, Levi invited Jesus to have a party at his house. 
Because Levi wants to celebrate his decision. Oh, I decided to follow Jesus. I want to have a party. So when Levi have a party, well, you can guess. All the guests must be fellow sinners, other tax collectors. Okay? So those sinners and those collectors come together at Levi's house to have a party with Jesus. Now think about Jesus for a second. If you were Jesus, what would you say? You're invited to have a party with fellow sinners. What would you do? Okay? Jesus doesn't say, uh, I'm sorry, bro. I'm happy that you decided to follow me, but you don't really expect me to hang out with your friends, right? I'm a teacher of the law. I have reputation to keep. I can't be seen hanging out with sinners. Jesus doesn't do that. But rather, Jesus gladly accepts Levi's invitation. And once again, this is very scandalous because in that culture, if you share a table fellowship with other people, it means that you welcome them and accept that person into your life. So it's like us today, for example. We don't really invite people over to our house for dinner unless we like that person. You with me on that? We only invite people to dinner in our house if we like that person. But in this culture, it's even more extreme. You only invite people to have party with you, to eat with you, if you are willing to say, you know what, they're my friend, I love them, I welcome them, I accept them. So that's why it's very intimate and personal. And now Jesus has no problem whatsoever sharing meals with tax collector and sinner. It tells us something about the fellowship that Jesus offered to you and me. The fellowship that Jesus offered to you and me is fellowship of grace. It has nothing to do with merit. And the scandal of this story is this. Jesus does not tell the tax collector and sinner, listen guys, you have to repent first before I accept you into my life. What Jesus does, Jesus enters into their life and because Jesus loved them and Jesus accepted them, because of that, it produced repentance in them. And this is what's so different about grace. Because we like to think, like, if I want to extend my hand of friendship with other person, that person got to be worth it. That person have proved that he or she is worthy of my friendship. Oh, but Jesus said, hold on a second. That's not the way grace works. Grace say, I welcome you, I love you, I accept you, and because of that, your life is transformed. So when the Pharisees see what happened, they're not happy at all. They do not like what they see. Now, who are the Pharisees? If you grew up in church like me, the moment that you hear the word Pharisees, what comes to your mind is the bad guys of the story, right? They are the bad dude, okay? But if we look at the context of the Jews in Jesus' days, the Pharisees, they're not the bad dudes. They're the good guys of the story. Because people love them. People want to be like them. They are very influential. Let me tell you how they look, okay, in everyday life. They wake up early to pray. They memorize scripture. They have good, solid theology. They are zealous for God. They are committed to their faith, and they obey the law of Moses. So they're the good people. People love Pharisees. People are like, ooh, Pharisees, awesome. But the problem with Pharisees is not that they're not good. The problem with the Pharisees is that they think they're too good to hang out with the bad people. So that's why they asked Jesus' disciples, listen, Peter, James, John, why does your teacher eat with those people? Doesn't he know who they are? They're tax collectors and sinners. They're unclean. And if you associate with them, you become unclean. And this is unacceptable. 
one writer put it this way. This is probably one of the most arrogant questions. Because by saying this, what the Pharisees say is, we are different from them. We're not sinners. We are the good people. So they concluded that they are different from the rest of the group. But they cannot be more wrong. Because in Jesus' eyes, there's only two types of people. Only two types. One is Jesus, and the second, sinners. That's it. Jesus or sinners. There's only two types of people. See, the tax collectors and sinners, they know. They don't need anyone to tell them that they're sinners. They know. But the problem with the Pharisees is they're blind to their sin. And this is the radical nature of grace. Those who think that they deserve grace do not get it. And those who know they do not deserve grace get it. This is why grace is extremely scandalous. Now, I want you to pay attention to Jesus' reply because this is probably one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Mark 2, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not, called to, the, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And with this, Jesus gave us his grand mission statement. And I believe Jesus' mission statement should be our mission statement. Because Jesus tells us clearly here, I did not come to call the righteous. I did not come to have fellowship with the good people. I came to save the messed up, broken, needy, sinful people. I did not come for those who are well, but I come for those who are sick. Now, you, you, you get this, right? For example, we do not need a doctor when we're healthy. You with me on that? I mean, we don't make appointment with our GP, and then when he asks, you know, what is wrong with you? How can I help? And we say, well, there's nothing wrong with me, doc. I just miss you. And then we pay $75 consultation fee and go home. None of us do that. When we go to GP, when we go to doctor, because we're sick, and that is why Jesus continued to have fellowship with the wrong crowd. Think about it. Let's say there's an alternate universe. And in that alternate universe, I'm not a pastor, but I'm a doctor. People don't call me Ochi. People call me Dochi, Dr. Ochi. Now, and every day in that alternate universe, I spend most of my time with healthy people. What does that make me? Ochi, useless Ochi, right? A useless doctor, why? Because you understand this. A good doctor always spends time with sick people. A good doctor, in fact, finds joy in helping sick people get well. It's what a good doctor does. And this is the picture that Jesus gave us. Jesus spent time with sinners. Because why? Because he's not repelled by sinners. It's the very fact that you are sinners that makes him joyful. Because he came for the reason that he can heal and cure you out of your sin. And that is what we see in Jesus. This is what's happened in Jesus' heart. Jesus is not repelled by sinful people because Jesus come to make them well. And rather than becoming unclean, Jesus' touch make them clean. Jesus' fellowship make them whole. Rather than being contaminated by sin, Jesus contaminates sinners with grace and love. That's why Jesus says this, I come not to call the righteous. I come for sinners. 
but pay attention carefully. Jesus is not saying that. Well, Pharisees, you're actually good people. You don't need me. That's not what Jesus said. What Jesus is saying is this, Pharisees, you are so blind to the point that you don't even realize that you're sick. You don't realize that you are sick and you need doctor. And until your eyes are open to your sinfulness, you will not understand why I do what I do. That's what Jesus is communicating. So here's a couple of questions that the text is asking us today. Who are we sharing a table of fellowship with today? I mean, do we share meals with people who do not know Jesus? What are we doing to reach out to sinners? Are we friends with sinners? Or have we become too comfortable in church, hanging out with church people, to the point that we no longer have meals with unbelievers so that we can share the gospel with them? Because here is my concern, okay? The more that I become a Christian, the longer that I become a Christian, the more this is true about my own heart, and the more that I fear is happening around me. For many of us, Jesus' mission is no longer our mission. I mean, many Christians and churches today, we are more like Pharisee than Jesus. Okay, here's what I mean. We close the door of the church to sinners. I mean, the church has become Jesus' fans club. Isn't that true? I mean, we're so excited, right, talking about Jesus. So when we gather, we're excited. Oh, today we're going to worship Jesus together. So we're excited meeting our friends. So we're excited about singing to Jesus, dancing for Jesus, gazing at Jesus, playing with Jesus. And yet, despite all our excitements about Jesus, it kept us from doing the very thing Jesus wants us to do. Reach out to sinners. And don't miss this. When our excitement for Jesus keeps us from Jesus' mission, then we have missed the gospel. See, we have become practical Pharisees. What happened is this. Our life is filled with Christian activities, with Christian people, and we stay away from the non-Christian people. We're afraid that they might become bad influence to us. So this is what happened. We load Pharisee with our mouth. It's like, oh, Pharisee, they're so bad. And yet our life, we are actually living out a Pharisaical life. We are just like them. We separate ourselves from unbelievers. But if we understand Jesus' mission statement, then we must accept that our mission as a church, as a Christian, is to reach out to those who need the gospel. As those who have received the call of grace, we are called to extend grace to sinners around us. Now, there's one this beautiful story um, from Pastor Tony Campolo. That stuck with me for many years. Okay, this is the kind of church that I want us to be, look, want us to look like. Okay? This is what happened. He tells this story. I think I, I, I shared this story with you, I think, many years ago. So what happened, Pastor Tony was at a conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. And he had flown there from Philadelphia, and a six-hour gap of time difference. So when he got to Hawaii, he got jet lag, right? And when you're jet lag, you can't sleep. So as a result, he was wide awake at 3 a.m. in the morning, and he was hungry. So then he walks through the night, and he finds a diner. So he goes in, he sits down, and he's eating. And right next to him, there are two women having conversation. And when they, um, he heard them having conversation, they found out that these two women are prostitutes. And one of them is named Agnes. If your name is Agnes, I'm sorry. So Agnes says... Tomorrow is my birthday. And the other person asks, well, Agnes, are you going to have a party? And Agnes replied, 
I never have a birthday party in my life. So not long after that, they left, and then Tony turned to the owner of the diner, a guy named Harry, and said, Harry, do you know this woman? And Harry said, yeah, sure. They're here every single night, and I know everyone who come at this time. And Tony said, well, when she come here tomorrow night, why don't we have a birthday party for her? I'll go out and buy all the decoration. I get the cake. Do you know any of her friends? Why don't you invite her friend? And Harry said, sure. Let me invite all her friends. So next night at 2.30 a.m. in the morning, they decorate the diner and they decorate the cake. And then slowly their friends start coming in. Her friends start coming in. And as Tony looked around, he suddenly realized that the friends of prostitutes are prostitutes. So there he is, a Christian pastor at 3 o'clock in the morning in a diner filled with prostitutes. And at 3.30 a.m., Agnes walk in and everybody shout out, Happy birthday! And she's stunned. She cannot stand. She sits down and she starts crying. She looks at the cake and she said, You know what? This is too much for me. To the point that she can't even blow the candle. So finally, Harry blew the candle for her. And Harry hands her a knife to cut the cake. And then she said, Do we really have to cut the cake? Can we not cut the cake? Can I keep the cake? Can I bring the cake home with me? Can I keep it? And finally, Tony and Harry say, well, sure, if that's what you want. So she grabbed the cake, and then she brought, she ran home with the cake. And then what happened is, so now Tony is standing there in a restaurant full of prostitutes, and they don't know what to do because the birthday girl has left the party. Awkward pause. And then Tony says to everyone, why don't we pray for Agnes? So Tony prayed for Agnes, and he prayed for her salvation and for God to change her life. And when Tony say amen, Harry comes to him and say, you never told me you are a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And I love Tony answers, and this is my hope for our church. Tony answers, I belong to the kind of church that throw a birthday party for whore at 3.30 a.m. in the morning. And Harry thinks for a second, and Harry says, no, you don't. There is no church like that. Because if there is church like that, I want to join that church. Listen, church. We are called to be a church just like that. Because Christianity is very different from every other religion. See, all other religions say this, you must be good enough to be accepted. But Christianity says there's no one good enough to be accepted. But Jesus came to seek those who are not good enough. And Jesus did not wait for people to come to him. Jesus came to seek the lost. He does not come to create Jesus' fan club. No, he came to bring sinners into repentance. With another word, Jesus says this, I came for Agnes. And if Jesus' mission is to reach out to Agnes, then our mission should be to reach out to people like Agnes. And look at my third point, the newness of grace. Okay? This is why grace is extremely scandalous. Verse 18 to verse 20. Now John's disciple and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciple and the disciple of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Okay. Now, I love this text, okay? Because this text tells us this. Jesus loves to eat. Anyone, anyone can relate with Jesus? Apparently, Jesus loved to go from one party to another party, from one feast to another feast, to the point that people are confused. So when people look at Jesus, they're confused. So they ask the question, Jesus, why are you always eating? How come you're not fasting? Pharisees are fasting. John's disciples are fasting. But how come you and your disciples go from one feast to another feast? Now, let me give you the context for this question. This is why it's crucial. There are three main pillars for Judaism. They are prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And in the Old Testament, the Jews are only required to fast once a year. How many? Once a year. It's called the Day of Atonement. That's it. But the Jews will also fast during national crisis. It is an act of humbling themselves before God and say, Lord, we need you to be merciful. However, by the time of Jesus, fasting has become a symbol of true piety. So if people are serious about God and if people are committed about their faith, people will fast. And you know who's at the top, at the top of the chain? The Pharisees, okay? Now, if you do not know, our church fast once a week, every Saturday, although hardly any of you do it. How do I know? I see it on your Instagram. But I do it, okay? I still fast every Saturday because I'm your pastor, right? I need to show example. I am better than you guys. But Pharisees are even better. If I fast once a week every Saturday, Pharisees, they fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And every time they fast, they will try to look as gloomy as possible. You know why? Because people want, they want people to admire. Oh, look at them. They're suffering for God. They are so good. They're amazing. They're example. But then now they look at Jesus and the disciple, they don't fast at all. They keep having face after face after face after face. What is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is simple. If you want to be like Pharisee, start fasting. If you want to be like Jesus, start feasting. Okay, that's not true. But look at Jesus' answers to this question, okay? Jesus' answers to this question is very intriguing. Because Jesus answered the question of not fasting with analogy of a wedding. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And my friend, the way Jews do wedding is very different from us. See, when we talk about wedding, we spend about what? Let's say one hour for holy, holy matrimony. And then we spend what? Three, four hours for the reception, right? So... Altogether, we spend about four to five hours in a wedding celebration, right? Not the Jews. The Jews know how to party. Their wedding celebration lasts for seven days, okay? You might want to give it a try, someone who got married in the coming months. Seven days of Rock Sydney International wedding celebration. And in those seven days, food and wine are abundant. So if you're invited to wedding celebration, it is dishonor actually for you to fast because you must celebrate and feast as an honor of those who invited you, including the Pharisees. So during wedding celebration, even Pharisees, they do not fast. So what Jesus is saying to all the Pharisees, listen, my time on earth is like a wedding celebration. 
It is time of joy, not a time of sorrow and sadness. And this is a very provocative image to the Jews. Because when Jesus called himself the bridegroom, you know what comes to mind? Because when the Jews hear the word the bridegroom, there's only one person that comes to their mind. Because the bridegroom of the nation of Israel is none other than Yahweh. So when Jesus now called himself the bridegroom, what another word, what Jesus is saying, hold on a second. I am the bridegroom that you've been waiting for. I am Yahweh in flesh. I am it. That's why you should not fast when I'm here. It is a time of celebration. Okay? And some of you are like, this is great. This is awesome. Now I don't have to join 21 days of fasting, right? Because it's time of feast. But then, Jesus has nothing against fasting. Because Jesus said, there is a time for fasting. When the bridegroom is taken away, then the disciple will fast. But when Jesus is still with them, it is not time to fast. It is time to have a feast and celebrate. Because Christianity at the core of it is not a grumpy religion. Christianity at the core of it is not a religion of to-do. Christianity at the heart of it is a celebration. It's joyful relationship. Because Christianity is not about do, do, do. Christianity at the heart of it is about Jesus has come to accomplish what we cannot do. He done it. That's why we party. That's Christianity. And in saying all this, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, listen Pharisees, when I come to earth, we actually enter a brand new era, a brand new situation. And to emphasize his point, Jesus gave these two parables. Verse 21 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skin, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wine skin. Now, if you, if you grew up in charismatic church, I'm pretty sure you have heard these verses a lot before, right? So let me explain what the parable is first. The first parable is about a garment. If your old clothes are ripped and you need to fix it, I mean, you do not cut pieces from your new clothes and sew them into your old clothes, right? That's dumb because if you do that, the old clothes will look strange and the new clothes will be ruined. No one do that. Second parable, wineskin. See, in those days, people would store wine in wineskins. And you do not put new wine in the old wineskin. Why? Because as wine ferments, it expands. So if you put new wine into the old wineskin, what happened? The old wineskin will stretch and it will explode. But if you put new wine into new wineskin, then everything will be okay. None of it will be wasted. So what is the point of this parable? Okay. And this parable is often misused. People like me will often use this parable to introduce something new in the church, especially New Year's. Okay. New Year's is the perfect uh, uh, time to use these verses. So I will say something like this. Hey, guys, we are making some changes in the church. Okay. We want to start something new. Instead of singing, we're going to start rapping during Christian worship. Instead of hymn, we're going to use the cray. Instead of Sunday worship, we're going to call it Sunday clubbing. Instead of saying amen, amen during the sermon, we're going to say ahe, ahe, right? 
and the moment I say that, people are like, no, you can't do that. That's not true. That's not the way we do that. And people like me will say, listen, guys, just because it's never done before doesn't mean it's not right. You can't put new wine into the old wine skin. With another, what I'm trying to say is, in order for me to do something new, to justify what I'm trying to do, you have to get rid of the old mindset. Okay, these are the way, the oftentimes, the parable is used. And there's some degree of truth to it. Okay, there's some degree of truth to it. But that is not the point Jesus is making. Because the point that Jesus is making is not about introducing something new in the church. No, no. Because what Jesus is making, the point that Jesus is making is far more radical. What Jesus said to the Pharisees, listen Pharisees, when I come to earth, when the kingdom of God finally come to earth, what I am doing is something far more radical that your Judaism, your old religion, your old tradition cannot keep me in it. You cannot put me in a box of Judaism because what I'm bringing is something different altogether. And the moment you try to mix the gospel, the moment that you try to mix what I am doing with your tradition, everything is destroyed. So what Jesus is saying to you and me is, okay, Christianity, listen, Christianity is not something we add to our pre-existing life. Christianity is like explosion that destroy the old to create something new. So Jesus says, when I come to earth, I bring with me the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel, the good news of grace. And you cannot mix and match the gospel with your man-made religion. Because with my coming, everything changes. And now I offer abundance of joy for every sinner who wants to receive grace. Grace is available. And because Jesus come to bring something new, that is why even the worst of sinners like Levi, even tax collectors who are condemned, who are not worthy, they can dance, they can celebrate. Because the grace of God do not look at how bad or how good you are. Because the grace of God says, I give grace to those who know that they're not qualified. That is the good news of the kingdom of God. That is the gospel. And that is why if salvation is by grace alone, then listen, even the worst of sinners have reason to celebrate and feast in the kingdom of God. Salvation is by grace alone. This is something new that Jesus brings to earth. And let me close with this. There are no such thing as a free feast and celebration. Someone must pay for the cost of feast and celebration. Someone must pay for the cost of grace for sinners. So who paid for the feast? Okay, listen to what Jesus said. First one. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. In a normal Jewish wedding, it is the guests who leave the bridegroom and the bride. But in this celebration, Jesus says this, that the bridegroom will be taken away from them. So before the celebration of, is over, the bridegroom will be taken away. And the word taken away in the original language, it's convey the act of force. So basically, the bridegroom is forcibly removed from the celebration. What's happening? Let me tell you what's happening. Jesus is alluding to the fact something will happen in the near future where he will be forcibly taken away from his people. You know what he's referring to? The cross. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the price of our feasts and celebration. Jesus is fully aware 
for the cost, the cost of grace for sinner is his death at the cross. Because someone must pay for the price of sin. Someone must pay for the grace that you and I receive. And that is why Jesus said, I have to be taken away from the celebration. I have to die in our, your place. I have to take on the wrath of God upon myself. I have to dare, die so that you may live. In order for the feast of God to continue, in order for us to be able to feast and celebrate, the bridegroom must first become a victim. He has to die. But here's the good news. By the death of the bridegroom, he guarantees that we are accepted and invited to celebrate. We are righteous before God simply because of grace. The perfect bridegroom must die so that we may feast for eternity. This is why grace is absolutely scandalous and does not make any sense. But the good news is, it is true. How do we know? Because Jesus has paid the price at the cross. So the question for you and me is this. Okay, the question is not, are you in church today? Or are you tuning in to the sermon? The question is this. Have you experienced and received this scandalous grace? Because if you have, the grace of God changes people. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful For your son, Jesus Christ, came to us. We know that we're not worthy. We know that we do not deserve it. And yet, Jesus, you came and seek us. You're not repelled by our sinfulness, but rather, it is, it is our sinfulness that drives you to come and seek us. So God, if any of us today in this place, we have yet to put our faith in you. We have yet to experience that scandalous grace. I pray that tonight, Today will be the turning point of our life. We want to say, as we hear you call to us, follow me. We want to respond like Levi. We want to walk. We want to stand from our sitting, from our sinful boot, and we want to follow you, Jesus. And help us, Holy Spirit, because you are the only one who can make the call of grace come alive in our heart. Speak to us right now, and I pray that you soften our heart to respond rightfully. And God, for our church, for many of us, maybe we've been Christian for a while, for many years, but we will look more like a Pharisee than you, that we withhold fellowship from those who are broken. Forgive us. But I pray that you give us your heart. I pray that our life will be open to those who are broken so that we may extend the fellowship of grace to them so that they might come to know you as their Lord and Savior. So use us, Lord. We want to be church like that. We want to be church for the broken people. We want our life to be extension of grace to the broken people. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.